from Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The White House has announced its final ruling on minimum wages for federal contractors. Starting in the 2022 calendar year, federal contractors must pay their workers a minimum of $15 an hour. GovExec reports that the ruling will impact more than 327,000 workers. The deadline for federal workers to get vaccinated against COVID-19 just passed on November 22nd. At that time, 90% of government employees had at least one shot. That's over 3.5 million employees. About 5% of those still unvaccinated are seeking medical and religious exemptions. About 175,000 workers are not in compliance with the White House executive order. The President's Management Agenda, or PMA, is here, and it has three big priorities. The White House will focus on, first, strengthening and empowering the federal workforce, second, delivering equitable and secure federal services, and third, managing the business of government to build back better. Those priorities will outline government efforts across all agencies for multiple years. Suicide has increased significantly over the last six years for American military service members and veterans. The number reached 28.7 per 100,000 service members in 2020. The Departments of Defense and Veterans Affairs are boosting their efforts to help prevent suicide and reduce rates among those groups. Alyssa Hundrup is a director on the healthcare team at the Government Accountability Office. Alyssa, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. What are we looking at for current rates uh, of suicide for military veterans? What are the latest trends that you're seeing? Yeah, um, as you mentioned, we're seeing rising trends. The most recent report that came out from DOD showing 2020 numbers shows um, yet again an increase. And so over the last six years, we've seen a 40% increase. In 2020 alone, 580 service member died. And this, this rate, this trend is rising for all services. Um, on the VA side, the most recent data available is from 2019. Um, but then while there was a decrease in 2019, which of course was only good news, um, the rates are still quite high. And in fact, uh, veterans are dying at almost twice the rate of non-veterans. And I know this isn't really part of your investigation, but why do you think the rates are going up? You know, there are so many factors. It's such a complex issue, and these numbers don't even account for the COVID pandemic. So it would be hard to, um, you know, I imagine the, the operations, for instance, in terms of what's been going on in Afghanistan um, may have made a difference. But again, there are so many. It's such a complex issue with so many factors at play here. It's, it's really hard to know. What did you find that was lacking in how the DOD and the VA approach suicide prevention? Well, we certainly found that they have made a serious commitment and emphasis on suicide prevention. But um, to start with DOD, you know, they have undertaken a lot of initiatives and they really, for instance, created a whole office to oversee their suicide prevention efforts. And while they have many new initiatives, they haven't really taken a look to see how well individual initiatives are working. So we're really hoping that they can um, keep the emphasis, keep the focus, keep the commitment, but really take that next step of understanding what's working, how well it's working so they can best use their resources and target it in that way. 
Your report mentions non-clinical efforts for suicide prevention. First, tell us what those efforts are and what you're seeing there, especially when it comes to effectiveness. Yeah, so non-clinical efforts are really, you know, outside of that clinician setting. So there are um, non-clinical type of counseling trainings, um, things like, you know, videos on um, safe firearm storage, for example. It can even extend beyond, um, you know, we, I think DOD would consider financial training, all of those things that can make a service member just have that quality of life, that resiliency. So there are a lot of different things that they would kind of factor in in terms of training, educational um, counselings, those sorts of things. Um, so that's where you know it's a fairly broad definition for non-clinical. And I apologize. I, I'm, I'm. You're going to have to remind me the second part of your question. Uh, well, how effective have they been? Right. Thank you. So, so that is the the question, and that's what we're hoping DoD will now focus at because they they have they have developed a framework, and so what that framework does is it allows them to look collectively across. And so, for instance, one of their um, the outcomes that they're looking at with this framework is. Um, creating protective environments. So with that, they have a number of different things within that kind of broader bucket, things like um, trainings on, on, and then creating social norms regarding, again, I'll use safe firearm safety as a, uh, or lethal firearm safety and storage as an example, since so many service members do end up buying, by dying by suicide with firearms. And then over time, they would expect to see a decrease in the number of suicides by firearms. So they have broad measures and a broad way to look at outcomes. But we're, we're concerned that they have so many new initiatives that haven't necessarily been tested in the military population that they just take, have an approach to really standardize and evaluate those non-clinical efforts so they can assess the individual effectiveness across the services. And have you found the DOD and the VA open to your recommendations for ramping up those non-clinical prevention efforts that you mentioned, staffing, training for suicide prevention? Yes, they they did agree. We had um, three recommendations to DOD and six to VA, and these were recently made in 2020 and 2021, and they have agreed with most of the recommendations, and we're now looking at the initial steps they have taken um, to see how well they've addressed it, and we will continue to monitor, but they have agreed and, and certainly understand the importance of, of going that next step. Um, Alyssa, what about the data? Um, have you found problems with the data on suicides um, at the VA? And, you know, what were your recommendations to address that issue? Well, where we looked specifically on the VA side at this point, we do have other ongoing work, but what so far, what our analysis looked at was on campus suicides. And this is a fairly specific. Um, area where unfortunately service members are, are, I'm sorry, veterans are taking their own lives at facilities. This is not a widespread thing, but there was certainly concern with an increasing trend. And so the VA, um, to their credit, began tracking the number and type of on-campus suicide. So these are, are deaths that are occurring on facilities, at clinics, maybe at cemeteries, what have you. Um, they had a process to track those, but unfortunately we found they were inaccurate. They weren't going back to really corroborate and validate. So the, the numbers that they had were inaccurate. So we made recommendations not only to improve 
that tracking so they had accurate information, but also to collect additional information or use the information that we're collecting to help their analyses so they could really learn and understand and get at the root cause as to why these were happening and, and most importantly, what they could do to prevent it in the future. All right, well, Alyssa, thank you so much for joining us and for your work on this issue. Thank you for having me. Remember, if you are thinking about suicide or are worried about a loved one, help is always available. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is open 24 hours every day. You can call 800-273-8255. The number is also on your screen. And you can find a link to that GAO report at govmatters.tv resources. Coming next, the looming deadline for the continuing resolution and how agencies and federal workers can start preparing for the possibilities. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Congress is running out of time to fund the government for fiscal year 2022. That deadline approaches as Congress also works through big ticket items like the Defense Authorization Bill and Build Back Better. Jessica Clement is Staff Vice President of Policy and Programs for the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. Jesse, welcome. Hi, Mimi. Thanks for having me yet again to talk about the continuing resolution. There is a lot going on right now, but let's start with that continuing resolution. December 3rd, funding runs out. What's going to happen? That is next week for those of you keeping track at home who like me cannot believe this week is Thanksgiving. December 3rd is in fact next week. It is like Groundhog's Day, Mimi. Every time I come on the show, I feel like we're talking about government funding. Uh, right now, we have a disagreement on two things. The length of the stopgap, because there's gonna be another continuing resolution. And then the top line numbers to move forward with the rest of F with FY22 funding bills. So if you look at the current CR, which expires on December 3rd, and next week is in fact December, uh, Congress has to figure out how long the next CR will go. I think it is disappointing that the conversation isn't how do we fund the federal government for the rest of fiscal year 20 2022. The conversation is how long will the next CR go? Um, and I think those discussions will ramp up next week, which as you note, is also a very, very busy week for Congress. Well, let's talk about what effect that will have. So if we do a short-term CR, what effect will that have? If we do a longer-term CR, you know, one that goes into February or March of next year, what kind of impact will that have on the government? I think the biggest impact on the government is taking them to the brink, right? Today is November 23rd, Congress is in recess this week, and Okay, Monday is November 29th. If they could get the stopgap measure, the continuing resolution passed on Monday, federal agencies have a lot more certainty as to what the rest of next week looks like. When you take them to the brink every time, like we discussed last time I was on your show, and you pass a continuing resolution, say on September 29th or September 30th, before the start of the fiscal year, or in terms of like this week, December 2nd or in the you know morning hours of December 3rd, that means very different things for federal agencies because they have to stop what they're doing and prepare for a possible shutdown. So that is the first issue, I think, in terms of how, um, how agencies are affected by these conversations. I think a December 17th um, deadline for the next CR, as Democrats seem to be pushing, is, okay, 
it's not going to get them very far, right? And we're going to have the same conversation two weeks from now. Federal agencies are going to go, great, now we're going to have this conversation getting closer to Christmas. You take it later into February and March. It's not good. A continuing resolution actually costs the government money, but at least there's a little bit more certainty in the process. And, you know, Democrats have won, are wanting to keep the pressure on Republicans by doing shorter-term CRs. And mm -hmm. so, you know, we might end up with a series of short-term CRs. But I want to ask you, Jessica, about the National Defense Authorization Act, the mm -hmm. NDAA. It passed the House. It'll be taken right. up by the Senate when they come back after Thanksgiving. What are you hearing about that? I think at the end of the day, the NDAA is historically a bipartisan piece of legislation. The things I saw this morning coming out of the newsletters is it's probably going to take the whole week in the Senate. There's going to be no shortage of amendments on things that are both related to defense and not at all related to defense. But at the end of the day, uh, the NDAA is one of those things that very rarely, if ever, doesn't pass. But it's, it is going to take up a lot of time. Uh, do, you, do you have an idea of a timeline? It looks like um, they're expecting it to go almost the entirety of the duration of next week. So there will be any number of amendments, any number of senators wanting to posture on their own amendments um, and why the amendments of their colleagues are bad, are bad ideas. But at the end of the day, the NDA usually does pass. And it's looking like at least, you know, as we sit here talking about it today, that it will be by the end of next week. Well, there's but still as you know, this NDA is getting a lot more coverage than, say, the continuing resolution is, which I could argue is certainly a bigger deal. There's still the debt limit out there where the government yeah. would default on its financial obligations. What's happening with that? No, no shortage of things to talk about this morning, is there? Uh, the latest uh, information coming from the Treasury Secretary is that the new debt limit will be reached on December 15th. When Congress passed a sh like a very small increase in the debt limit, small relative to the debt, li debt limit, not small to people like you and I, um, that it, it was looking like the debt limit would go to honor around December 3rd, right around the same time as the CR. Uh, Se Treasury Secretary said the other day that now it's looking they'll be able to get closer to December 15th. That date will continue to be fluid as the government pays its bills. What impact, Jesse, will the, um, if at all, this debt limit, if it's reached, impact federal workers or retirees? It is going to impact everyone in this country acutely if, if we get to the brink and Congress does not raise that ceiling. Basically what it means is that the federal government can't pay its bills. So it will pay bills as it can, as they are due. What it means for, say, retirees, both federal retirees who rely on an annuity and senior citizens who rely on Social Security um, will depend on how when their next payment is relative to December 15th, right? So if we reach the debt limit on December 15th, Social Security federal annuities are usually paid. Federal annuities around the first of the month, Social Security is a little bit more staggered. Maybe Congress works this out by the time federal annuities need to be paid on January, on or around January 1st. For federal employees, if they have a paycheck coming soon after that, it could very, very, very much mean that they don't get paid. All right. Well, Jesse, thank you very much for being on the program and thanks for the update. Thank you so much for having me, Mimi.
Up next, the new version of the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification has big impl implications for federal contractors. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the latest on paring down CMMC 2.0. We'll be right back. The Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program, or CMMC, has an update to reduce and streamline the system. Those changes could have big impacts for federal contractors. Eric Crucius is a partner at Holland & Knight. Eric, welcome, nice to see you. Good to be here, thanks. Is CMMC 2.0 good news for contractors? I'd say it's good news in a couple of ways. One, for folks who don't have uh, really high-level high information from DOD. Um, they don't have to go for a full third-party certification. Now they have a self-certification. So that will lower costs for contractors. There's also simplicity in the model. So the old model had a bunch of bespoke requirements in it. Um, now they're just really relying on existing requirements like NIST Special Publication 800-171 and the FAR clause that's already there. So in some ways, that's pretty good news for contractors. And is it significant that the levels have been reduced from five levels down to three levels? There's some significance, and that goes to your previous question on simplicity. It's a little bit easier now to kind of track these things. The levels two and levels four, the previous levels two and four, were not really much of anything. They were kind of way stops to the higher levels three and five. But um, I think it makes things a little bit simpler now that there are only three levels. There's also self-certification. How does that work? <laughs> so that's, that's kind of one of the more interesting parts about this. So level one was previously a third-party certification, and now it's just a self-certification. And actually part of level three is also self-certifying. Um, but the interesting thing is, is that somebody in the C-suite has to certify on an annual basis that the company is compliant with whatever the requirements are. And that's a lot to ask of somebody in the C-suite who doesn't have their hands on what the technology is and whether there's compliance or not. So there's a higher risk of things like False Claims Act and things like that because you have a company certifying to something, whereas before, you kind of bought off your risk by putting it on a third party who was certifying you. If the third party said you were okay, you're okay. So if somebody complains, no big deal, um, or not much of a deal. So what's the Civil Cyber Fraud Initiative? So that was something that came up. It, it's actually, it's funny how all these things are working in concert with each other. I don't think it's an accident at all. But a few weeks before the new self-certification requirements were announced, um, DO, the, D the Department of Justice announced that they're going, they're going to look really closely at contractors who are certifying to cybersecurity standards and really aggressively looking at whether those certifications are made in good faith and civilly, uh, you know, going after those contractors that are not um, doing so under the False Claims Act. So you had that come out first, and then we had CMMC 2.0, which rolled out a self-certification. Probably no accident at all, at all with that. So if, they're, if they do get a third-party assessment, does that mean that they're no longer liable for any errors? I think um, the risk is a lot lower. I would say it's not a blanket no, but if, you're, if you bring an assessor in, you show them your entire system, they go through the checklist, and they, they say, yes, you deserve to be certified, you're compliant with this standard, and then a year or two later, there's a cybersecurity breach, and all those same systems are in place, there's a lot less kind of liability on the contractor because of that, because you had a third party come in and say it was okay, as opposed to you self-certifying and then that happens. DOD is going to take a very strong interest probably in what happened in DOJ too. If you have self-certified that you're fine and then there's a cybersecurity breach based on something that was missing in your systems. 
So does this put smaller contractors um, at a disadvantage because you know they might not be able to pay for the third-party um, certifications? That's kind of been the argument of CMMC all along why it wasn't working properly or why you know the shortfalls in it. But in some respects, it's kind of necessary. DoD is long seen that contractors have not been living up to the standards they've been putting in their contracts. You know, contractors are signing these contracts with these clauses in them. And these clauses require the contractors to have these systems in place, and DOD thinks these systems are really not in place. So now that's why they brought this third-party certification in. So small businesses are, are at a disadvantage because the, they're going to bear a substantial cost of this. But DOD feels like there's not really any choice in this matter because they've tried to go the self-certification way, and it hasn't really worked. We've had significant cybersecurity breaches since then, so now they're trying something you know, that will hopefully stop that. So CMMC 1.0 is suspended. 2.0 has not taken an effect yet. What are contractors supposed to be doing right now? So contractors should really be getting ready for 2.0 by getting their systems up to where they should be uh, in general. There are already existing requirements in place. So if you're going for what's the new level two, which is consistent with NIST special publication 800-171, you're already signing contracts probably with that requirement in it. Uh, so you're kind of essentially already self-certifying. So really examine those, examine that. And you're also probably certifying under a DOD database that requires you to say how many of those 110 controls you're compliant with. So look to make sure your certifications are consistent and look to make sure your systems are ready to go when 2.0 is ready to go. Eric, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us to get the latest updates, reminders, and links to video segments. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges.